Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Power Current, hosted by me, Chris Berry, and presented by Clear Commodity Network. My guest today is Dr. Jay Turner, Professor of Environmental Studies at Wellesley College. Dr. Turner is a prolific researcher on the recent history of U.S. environmental politics and policy, including climate change, the clean energy transition, and public lands management. This is very timely thanks to legislation such as the Inflation Reduction Act, one of the things that we cover in depth during this podcast. He has taught in the Environmental Studies Program at Wellesley College since the fall of 2006, and his training is in environmental history and in environmental studies. His most recent book, Charged, A History of Batteries and Lessons for a Clean Energy Future, unpacks the history of batteries to explore why solving the battery problem is crucial to a clean energy transition. But given the unique environmental impacts of batteries, including mining, disposal, and more, does a clean energy transition risk trading one set of problems for another? With new insight on questions of justice and sustainability, Charge draws on the past for crucial lessons that will help us build a clean energy future from the ground up. In today's discussion, we will cover these issues and others, including historical precedents for the transition, pricing risks, specifically environmental and geopolitical, understanding the optimal public-private investment model, Dr. Turner's EV supply chain database, and what he learned in writing this fascinating book. Dr. Jay Turner, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. It's great to be here. Yes, it's, a, it's great to finally have you on. I had wanted to um, bring you on and actually talk about everything you're working on and your uh, new book as well for a long time. So I'm glad we could finally get together. Um, and for well, those of you who... Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and for those of, of the folks on the podcast today that may not know sort of where you're coming from or, or a little bit about your background, just to kind of set the stage for uh, where you've come from and and all of the work that you have done with respect to uh, the environment and and supply chains. Why don't you just take a couple of minutes here, talk a little bit about your background and how you arrived at this really interesting focus on batteries and supply chain dynamics. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Well, again, thanks for the invitation to be here. Yeah, so, you know, I am an environmental historian, which uh, maybe makes me a little bit different from most other folks who wind up on on your show. And so you might be wondering, well, what is an environmental historian? And environmental historians are interested, you know, first in how people have changed the environment over history, but more importantly, what are the ways in which the environment has affected human history? And what's the interplay between humans and the environment? And how does that change you know, how we think about um, human history broadly? And so in that context, energy is an important topic, but environmental historians, energy historians, you know, when they've written about energy, it's usually been focused on the prime movers, right? So um, you know, the transition from biomass to coal, the rise of petroleum, debates over nuclear energy, all of these major sources of, of energy. And you know, one thing people haven't focused on very much at all is batteries. You know, in fact, batteries have largely been a footnote in energy history. And so for me, that was you know, my starting point for this project was you know, an, an interest in you know, what can an environmental historian offer if we think about the key place that batteries are gonna play as we move into the 21st century. And as a historian, what really fascinated me is that batteries have played a really important role in the 20th century. 
Excellent. And I do want to just tie in, obviously, you've, as I mentioned earlier, you've written this really interesting book uh, called Charged, which is, I, I would sort of characterize it as the history and the future of the battery and of a of the clean sort of energy transition. And so, you know, you mentioned history in your sort of preamble there um, uh, several times. And so, and that's really one of the things that I liked about the book as I read it, you sort of take a look at the past and try and ch chart a path forward for the future. But in your research for the book, and by the way, the book is, I'll, I'll let you sort of delve into it, but it's it, the way I look at it, it's, it's divided into sort of three areas, if you will, lead acid, double a batteries and of course lithium ion which to your point is is something everyone is very interested in today but with respect to thinking about the history of those three topics so in your in your research for this book and you know again i i would recommend that anyone listening to the podcast uh go out and buy this book it's part history part future and i think that's one of the things that makes it really appealing but you know in your research were you able to find any historical precedents for the scale and the scope of what is currently happening with respect to the energy transition? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, one of the things I learned quickly is just, you know, how interesting the parallels are between what we're seeing now with, you know, the growing role of lithium ion batteries and electric vehicles, but also on the grid, you know, paralleling what was happening at the start of the 20th century, because at the start of the 20th century, lead acid batteries were filling the same roles. They were the starter batteries for for gasoline cars as they began to become a mass consumer product. And then lead acid batteries and other batteries were being used uh, to help stabilize electric grids um, early in the 20th century as well. But in terms of, you know, that question of scale, um, you know, the lithium ion battery industry has become far larger than the lead acid battery industry at, at, at this point. Um, but the rise of the lead acid batteries in the early 20th century is, you know, car sales went from millions to tens of millions to hundreds of millions by the second half of the 20th century. And the lead, lead acid uh, battery industry had to keep pace. And so you were seeing, you know, manufacturing on, you know, what we might describe as a scale of gigafactories happening with lead acid batteries, a recycling industry that was growing to capture all of those batteries after they were done after two, three, five years and return that lead back into new batteries. And so, you know, the development of that supply chain, the manufacturing, and then the recycling, I mean, all of that, you know, it's not at the same scale as a lithium ion battery industry today, but, you know, you can see kind of a, a precursor to, the lithium ion battery industry that's growing around us right now. For sure, for sure. And then in the book, you you had an interesting quote uh, where you talked about the crucial lessons. And I put the word crucial lessons in air quotes because that is actually, I think, what you refer to. And so, you know, what are, given, you know, this sort of history journey that you're taking us at here, taking us through here, pardon me. I mean, what would you say are some of those crucial lessons from the past? Is it uh, security of supply? Is it a focus on R&D? I mean, what do you think, again, just kind of keying off of what we saw in past booms, um, what are those crucial lessons as we embark going forward? For me, you know, I could give you 10. <laughs> I'll give you three. I think one, <laughs> is, one is, you know, these are not just technologies, right? They're, um, you know, they are technologies that have social implications. And so something that I'm very interested in in this book and as we look to the future is thinking about, you know, what the social implications of sourcing 
manufacturing and disposing of batteries is. You know, where are the frontline communities? Who's doing the work of manufacturing and recycling batteries? And, you know, how are the costs and the benefits of that going to be reallocated as we see this clean energy transition accelerate? Um, so that's, you know, one lesson, you know, looking at the past that, you know, makes me think more sharply about those issues going into the future. Another is just the important role of government. And maybe we'll have a chance to talk about the Inflation Reduction mm -hmm. Act. But I am charged with a call for the U.S. to, you know, think carefully about how to build industrial policy that would support the development of a battery industry and other clean energy uh, industries in the United States. And so, you know, that's a, a second kind of lesson that I draw from this. The third one is maybe focus more on environmentalists. Um, I teach in an environmental studies program. I teach a lot of students who think of themselves, I think of myself as an environmentalist. And I think, you know, environmentalists have struggled to think about materials, to think about stuff. Um, and I think batteries are a good example of this, right? We know we want to transition away from fossil fuels and to a clean energy future, but you know what the material implications of that are in terms of sourcing the lithium and the nickel and the graphite. That's something that um, you know environmentalists have you know have been coming around to, but not something that I think kind of collectively we've thought through as carefully. And so that is a third big lesson uh, for me from my research is just how materially intensive the clean energy transition will be. Right. That's that's a great uh, point. And it's a great segue. I call that the paradox of green growth in the sense that um, I think there's a view or there was a view out there perhaps that we could continue to grow, we could decarbonize, we could electrify and use a static amount of material or maybe fewer raw materials. And at least my personal view is it's going to take much, much more. And, you know, I, I will want to get your thoughts on that. But just to kind of you, you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, and I definitely want to go there. Uh, you've talked about social implications, environmentalist sort of concerns and and the focus there and, of course, government. And given your focus on environmental research and, and policy, um, what do you think is the best way forward here? Um, you know, you have another quote in the book, and it's I believe it was transition is inevitable. Justice is not. And so, you know, what I'm really asking you, Jay, is. How do you balance this push and pull or this tug of war between environmentalist concerns, between the miners, between the technologists and, of course, the government? I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the Inflation Reduction Act here in, in one second, because I think it is central to answering that question. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on how to how to be pragmatic and how to decarbonize and, and for lack of a better phrase, try and try and make everybody happy all at once. I don't even know if that's possible, but just wanted to get your thoughts on how do you try to balance all of these competing and, and in many cases conflicting interests? Whew. That's a big question. <laughs> and I think you're, you know, that point you made, which is, you know, is it, is it going to be possible to keep everyone happy? I mean, no, right. We're talking about, you know, change on, you know, a massive scale with you know, implications for industry, for investment, for you know, supply chains, for the communities and the people who are doing this work. And you know, they're going to be winners and losers in this transition. Um, but finding you know, ways to, I guess, you know, one, minimize, but I think even before that, to acknowledge and face up to the costs that are going to come with this transition, I, I think that's you know, what's you know, really 
kind of crucial. And so I guess to come back, I mean, your question's a really, it's a really good one. And if I was going to try and boil it down to, to one thing, I think, you know, transparency is important. Um, and I think, you know, we're seeing steps towards this in the battery industry. I mean, this is an industry that knows it's going to be scrutinized as, you know, manufacturing facilities are scaled up as supplies of raw materials are sourced and scaled up and, you know, initiatives around battery passports, which on the one hand are going to help with, you know, recycling at end of life, but also can provide a chain of custody to understand where the materials are coming from that are going into the batteries. Initially, you know, it's those sorts of initiatives that are going to, um, you know, provide transparency daylight, um, you know, issues around sourcing that I think are going to be important both towards, you know, holding the industry accountable, but I think um, addressing, you know, the kinds of concerns that social justice advocates and environmentalists are going to raise about, you know, what the implications are of scaling up, uh, you know, a more electric and all electric, you know, battery powered, um, you know, energy system. Sure, sure. And look, as I mentioned earlier, obviously, the Inflation Reduction Act, 730 page piece of legislation, I think touches all kinds of or all, all different corners of, of the uh, North American economy or the US economy. Um, again, kind of a broad question here for you. But, you know, as you read through it or look at the highlights, certainly with respect to electrification, uh, what is your verdict? I mean, is this going to be truly transformational and ultimately successful in achieving its goals, or is it too early to tell? Yeah, um, I've got some thoughts here. So, right, it's this enormous sure. piece of legislation. It's so important. And I think, you know, I guess maybe to start with the argument for it is going to be as you know, important as a lot of people think it's going to be. I mean, one, it just represents such a step change in U.S. energy climate policy. Um, you know, it is focused squarely on carrots and incentives and providing support for both um, the production through industry um, to build up the supply chains and factories to produce the solar panels and wind turbines and especially the batteries and the electric vehicles and also incentives for consumers to uh, purchase them and to move us towards a um, you know, a net zero economy. And so, you know, on the one hand, just the fact that it is focused on carrots as opposed to uh, a stick, right, where it's, you know, not a carbon tax, it's not a cap on the amount of carbon, there are not emission standards that are being built into this, that were built into this legislation. And that's a big change in terms of how U.S., climate energy policy has been done, right? It's picking up, you know, what the Obama administration tried to do in 29, 2010, in the aftermath of the uh, the recession then, and it's doing kind of taking that strategy and doing it at a, at a whole new scale. So I think, you know, that's part of the argument for being an important shift. And that has political implications because, you know, as we've seen a lot of the projects that have, um, kind of been announced have been announced in states that are purple or red states sure. and states that traditionally yeah, right have, you know been uh not enthusiastic about um policy to address climate change or to advance an energy transition and so you know if the ira um can begin to change the politics of energy and jobs and growth in the united states in a way 
that you know, can bring and build some bridges across the uh, parties on energy climate action. I mean, that might be, you know, that's going to be as important as, you know, the specifics of the policy initiatives around um, electrification. And so, I mean, you know, put those two things together, right? And, and just looking at the scale of, you know, investment that we've seen announced since the IRA was passed, I mean, all of that seems to add up to, you know, a massive shift that the IRA is playing an important part in enabling. So I guess that's the optimistic take. You want you want the other half of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think just for my own two cents, I think there's a big issue that's left out of the IRA. And that is, of course, the, the speed with which we need to build out this infrastructure, specifically the mining infrastructure, um, without permitting reform. Um, and again, that can take many different uh, shapes and sizes. Um, Gosh, I, you know, if you could build a cathode facility, right, a cathode manufacturing facility or a recycling facility in, say, three or four years here in the United States, but you're still sourcing your raw materials from elsewhere, um, gosh, it, it seems like there's a big hole in the IRA. But anyways, that's, that's my two cents. I'd love to hear your, your the opposite sort of um, side of the take as you, as you referenced it. Well, I, I can build off of, you know, the point you're making, right? You know, are, sure. are we ready for this transition? And I think, you know, the question you're raising, right, are, you know, are we ready to scale up, um, you know, the extraction of raw materials necessary to support the IRA, right? The IRA includes a 10%, you know, subsidy, right, on the production of critical materials domestically. Um, it's got a 10-year lifespan, right, for this piece of legislation. I think it's an open question whether, you know, I mean, you know, how many mines are going to come online and be able to to take advantage of that incentive, given given all of the hurdles in terms of permitting? So I think you know that's one uh, concern. Another is you know whether consumers are ready. Right, we're seeing announcements of you know U.S.-based manufacturing being able to turn out you know five million EVs per year in 2030 if the plans of companies like GM and Ford and Volkswagen and others come to come to pass, but are consumers ready for those EVs? Are consumers really going to follow through? You know, given the concerns about the charging infrastructure and um, you know the practical practi the practicality of EVs, and so I think you know that's you know could be a potential you know a significant headwind for the IRA is just you know consumer uptake despite the incentives that the law includes. And I think the other, you know, is just, is there going to be political blowback? I was surprised at how little noise was made about the Inflation Reduction Act during the midterm elections last year, last fall. Um, but, you know, we can already anticipate that this is going to be a major point of debate in the presidential elections. And if we see a shift in uh, political control in Washington that, you know, shakes investor corporate confidence and the incentives that the IRA includes, you know, that's going to be trouble. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting point you raise, because if we jump to 2024 and let's assume that the Republicans, you know, win the House, win the Senate and win the White House. OK, it's just a scenario. It's not a prediction. Um, what does that mean for the Inflation Reduction Act? Will the Republicans create their own IRA? To your point, I mean, so many of the jobs and so much of the infrastructure are going to purple and red states. So it's sort of, it seems like you sort of ask yourself, well, why would the Republicans want to do away with this legislation when it's increasing employment and increasing the tax base? But, you know, is it just kind of an optics thing where they don't want the Democrats to have a win? 
So they want to have their own Inflation Reduction Act in 2024. But again, I think, you know, the issue there is, to your point, the uncertainty and also just the the amount of time that it takes, <clears throat> excuse me, to to build out uh, this infrastructure. I mean, in 2024, that's, you know, a year plus almost two years down the road now. So, um, gosh, I just think that a lot of that potential political uncertainty means a lot of volatility in the supply chain going forward. Um, it sure does. Yeah, yeah, I just, yeah. I'd add in there. One sure. thing that's interesting, right about one thing that's interesting about the Inflation Reduction Act is kind of how strategic, you know, it was put together, right? That it, most of the incentives are going through the department, department of the, or through the Treasury Department, right? They're not going through the Department of Energy. Um, they're not the sorts of things that you know a new president can come in and simply, you know, with a swipe of a pen or some direction to the Department of energy or one of his appointees, you know, ask them to change the implementation of because these are tax credits that are written into the tax code and being implemented by the Treasury Department, it's going to take Congress to act and change the tax code and change these incentives. And that's going to, you know, that will take that's a heavier um, legislative lift. Uh, so it will take, you know, a coordinated effort on the part of those who oppose the IRA to, to make that happen. But that's not to say it couldn't happen. Well, you know, to your point about, I guess, I don't want to call it executive overreach, but just sort of certain departments or certain uh, branches of government going their own way. I mean, look at what uh, the White House has done with Japan, uh, which does not have a free trade agreement in place with the United States, but is basically effectively going to be um, given preferential access under the auspices of the IRA because of the fact that they're an ally. And it's kind of a counterbalance, I think, to the Chinese growth in the supply chain. So that that's very interesting. And then, you know, look, well, speaking of China, I just would be remiss without um, asking you a question about, you know, not so much your thoughts on the economy and the country and what's going on over there, but really, you know, the the China growth model, which is subsidized industries until you absolutely dominate them, whether or not to your point, you know, back during the financial crisis, the Chinese were dominating the solar panel market. Now they dominate most of the battery supply chain. Um, you know, is the Inflation Reduction Act sort of designed, uh, certainly designed to compete with the Chinese and I think push them out of certain markets, uh, namely North America and our allies. But, you know, is, is that state-supported investment model, is that ultimately sustainable? It kind of comes back to my question earlier about the balance between the public sector and the private sector. I mean, I think that, you know, here in Western markets, we're sort of obsessed with Adam Smith and the invisible hand and the market working its magic. But, you know, is there a risk of sort of the IRA um, sort of co-opting the China model and creating too much capacity? Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, as a historian, you know, it seems to me that there are kind of two lessons here. I mean, one, you know, the fascination with Adam Smith and the free market you know, ignores all of the support that the railroads received in the 19th century to help build out a transcontinental rail system, which then instrumental to economic growth, you know, through the 20th century in the U.S. You know, the fossil fuel industries and access to public lands and favorable lease rates. Um, you know, these were all crucial to providing support to industries that you know, were you know, core to the 20th century. But you know, also thinking about a more recent lesson, um, one thing that really surprised me as I dug into this book was, you know, as someone who was focusing on climate change and, you know, the late kind of 
2008-2009, you know, concerned about international negotiations, just the story I always heard about China was that they were focused on building more coal-fired power plants, right? It was, you know, five coal-fired power plants, you know, every, you know, 10 days, <laughs> something like that. You know, sure. It was rapid, you know, build-out. And that was kind of the narrative that most people bought into. And the, at the very start of the 21st century, you know, not realizing, you know, that at the same time that China was investing in fossil fuels, it was also beginning to make major investments in clean energy industries. And solar was part of that. But, you know, really, you know, in 2009, 2010, same time the Obama administration tried to develop an industrial uh, policy around uh, EVs in response as part of the response to the uh, 2008-9 recession. I mean, that was the same time China really started to lean into an industrial policy and building out a supply chain to um, support an advanced battery industry in China. And, you know, the U.S. started down that path. Um, you know, companies like A123 and Fisker, right, got money from the Obama administration. And, you know, as we know, because it was all over the headlines, those projects went south. And when that happened, the, you know, Republicans, the Tea Party, right? This was this moment in American political history, shut down all of those programs that had been put into place. But it was, you know, at that moment that China continued to lean into and provide support to develop incentives to accelerate the uptake of EVs in China. And you know, that really is where China you know, got such a big head start in its battery industry. And so right now we find ourselves playing catch up and you know in my view, right, the IRA is trying to replicate a lot of the, you know, state level support that China provided here in the U.S. to bring this industry back to the U.S. and, to, um, you know, make us competitive. Sure, sure. And, you know, with, with the sort of the, the theme of the idea of um, geography in mind, in other words, sort of the regionalization of supply chains, one of the incredibly valuable things um, that you and your your team, perhaps your students, have done um, on your website, which, by the way, the website is charged-the-book.com. Um, one of the incredibly valuable things you've done is created the dashboard, and it's a dashboard of the U.S. and Canada electric vehicle supply chain. And, you know, the, the first, as, I, as I'm looking at it, I'm actually looking at it right now, the question, you know, jumps out at you, why do a dashboard, which is a question I have for you. But, you know, in in uh, the answer, I think here is an important topic of your book is the geography of the global EV supply chain. And so, you know, why is it that um, first of all, first question is, why is geography so important? Is it, you know, the regionalization and self-sufficiency of raw materials that we're really focused on? So a little maybe a comment on why geography is important, number one. And then number two, if you can go into some of the details on you know, a little bit more about why the dashboard and, and sort of what you've learned from compiling all of this really valuable data. Yeah. Um, so the geography question, this may be a little different answer than you expect, but I think one of the things that just fascinates me endlessly is if, you know, I hold a smartphone in my hand, or if I get into an EV, like I'm just fascinated by the ways in which that technology connects me to supply chains and to places all around the world. And 
you know, those connections are opaque, right? The way the market is designed, it is hard to see those connections, right? To figure out, you know, all the different places that are in, in, interconnected into these technologies that we rely upon. Um, you know, for me, that's just fascinating. So for, you know, so unpacking that geography, understanding kind of the industrial, uh, you know, ecology of this industry, how it connects all of these different places, that, that's, you know, something that I, I want to unpack and make sense of. But I think that's important work, too, because if we're going to take responsibility, think about issues of sustainability and social justice, you know, understanding where, you know, what the geography of these industries you know, is, or are, um, is, is important. And and so, you know, I guess that's my starting point on the geography part of this is just understanding those connections. Um, the dashboard, you know, so actually the start of the dashboard is an interesting one because I was teaching in the spring of 2022 um, in both of my classes. I had one of two Ukrainian students at Wellesley College. That's where I teach. And it became clear that uh, the student needed an option to stay on campus rather than going home for the summer. And so with the support of the college, I was able to bring her on kind of last minute as a research student without kind of a clear sense for what project um, we were going to work on together. And I kind of offered two projects, two ideas. And one of them was, you know, just it seems that there is a lot of media coverage right now of investments that are beginning to happen because of the infrastructure bill. Um, just the growth of the EV industry. And, you know, it just seems like the ball is starting to roll here. And so this is, you know, about a year ago, May of 2022, you know, it might be useful just to start counting. Let's just start tracking all of these announcements. You know, how many gigawatt hours of battery capacity are being announced? Um, how many, you know, EVs per year are they saying they're going to manufacture at this new plant? Um, you know, when are they saying this new, um, you know, lithium mine is going to come online? And so let's just start counting and tabulating this information. And let's focus on North America and, you know, try and build a database to understand how the domestic electric vehicle or the North American electric vehicle supply chain is developing. And so that was the start of that project. Very, very interesting. I had no idea about that. I'm glad that was that was all able to come uh, come together for you and for your student, uh, because, again, it is a very valuable and it's a growing. It's sort of a it's almost like a live animal. It's a growing database. So really, really interesting for anyone listening to this. You should definitely check that out. Um, just a couple more questions here. You know, you had mentioned, uh, again, kind of keep keeping with the theme of of geography and and regionalization and self-sufficiency of supply chains. I mean, look, I we've seen the price of lithium go from let's call it six or seven thousand U.S. dollars a ton to a peak of eighty thousand U.S. dollars a ton. This is, of course, the spot market in China. And now it seems like it's coming back down to earth and and the supply chain, at least the lithium supply chain is sort of readjusting. Um Look, high prices, I think, get the uh, attention of governments. High commodity prices get the attention of governments, whether or not it's thinking about, you know, how do we generate more revenue either through royalties or taxes or what have you. And so maybe you have a comment there on on historically what you have seen with high prices and how governments um, react or, you know, positively or negatively. And really what I'm thinking about is, of course, last week, uh, the long awaited, I guess, Chilean lithium strategy was announced. And look, the bottom line is it's still pretty confusing. 
um, there is what I would call the the potential for at least partial nationalization of new lithium assets, which again, all I, all I really think that does at the end of the day is just injects a little bit more uncertainty and volatility into the supply chain. So just maybe if you have any thoughts on on not so much the history of nationalization, but when you think about commodities and some of these battery metals and pricing does go haywire and governments get involved. I mean, what are what are some of the takeaways or, or perhaps uh, cautionary tales that you might be able to share? Yeah, it's um, another good question. And you know, I think as a his, you know, historian, just you know, the one moment that comes to mind is you know, the crisis you know, after World War II, where there was so much concern about the availability of key minerals that were needed to um, you know, protect the national interest, uh, maintain the military, and to grow the economy. And so, you know, the Paley report, which was kind of a big minerals report that happened in the 19, uh, I guess the early 1950s, was, you know, centered on this, you know, question of both domestic and international mineral supplies out of concern for shortages and prices going haywire and the need to, you know, have more predictability in supplies and, and, and in the market. And I guess my sense is that, you know, we've been out of practice. <laughs> There's, this hasn't been a big focus for policymakers. I mean, certainly with the rare earth, um, rare earths, I mean, that, you know, emerged as a pressing concern in the 2010s. But, it, you know, it seems like, you know, for a good period, we kind of collectively got out of practice of thinking about the importance of these kinds of materials to energy systems. And people were much more focused on some of the dynamics of the uh, fossil fuel markets and not on, you know, the lithium and the nickel and the manganese and the graphite, which, you know, I guess in my mind aren't commodities in a traditional sense, right? I mean, these are such highly specialized materials that go into batteries that they play by a different set of rules. And, you know, my sense is that, you know, the IRA, um, you know, and policy policymakers are, you know, still trying to figure out how best to manage and figure out a way to, um, reduce the uncertainty that's you know characteristic of these markets right now it's, yeah you know, demand going up so quickly i don't want to wade into the debate about whether these metals are commodities or specialty chemicals my personal view is that they're specialty chemicals but uh, that doesn't mean that they don't behave like commodities from a pricing perspective with with booms and busts and i think that's you know one of the challenging things for investors and to your point for for government officials that are trying to figure out you know how do we how do we sort of manage this whole thing on the government side how do we build out the supply chains to your point um making it a more just or an equitable transition and of course investors are sort of saying well you know how do you justify spending tens of millions billions of dollars on mining capacity when lithium can go for example from six thousand dollars a ton to eighty thousand dollars a ton and then sort of come back down to earth it's always it's not a question that i'm posing it's not a question we're going to answer today but that is i think that underlies part of the challenge mm -hmm. in in attracting investment for this this whole shift um and, and speaking of just a couple more questions um Speaking of investment, um, one of the, I think, uh, questions that comes across my desk a lot, and I wanted to hear from you, is just the role of climate technology. Um, how important would you say are um, aspects of climate technology, whether or not it's carbon sequestration or, you know, one of the ones that we see a lot in the lithium space is, of course, direct lithium extraction. I mean, um, it seems to me that climate 
climate technology, you know, depending upon what your goals are is, is crucial. And so just wanted to get your thoughts again, maybe, uh, putting on the historian's hat and talking about how climate tech or technology in the past has, has helped power economic growth. Do you sort of see that happening going forward? And is it really crucial for this transition? Feel, listen, I feel like this takes me a little bit out of my out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> sure, um, but but uh, I'll take a stab at it. I mean, you know, as a from a historical perspective, I mean, you know, clearly technology is going to play an important role. Um, you know, we're not going to stabilize the climate if we can't figure out some way to pull some of that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it back into um, into reservoirs. Um, there's going to be new extraction technology for lithium and there will be new battery chemistries down the road they don't come along all that often but it will happen i'm confident of that um but i think as a historian what really kind of strikes me is just the step change in terms of the level of investment the level of urgency the level of and just work that's going into exploring all of these alternatives um you know with you know this has become you know, I guess it seems that a lot of people from a lot of different sectors suddenly are seeing this as, you know, a growth opportunity and a place to put investment um, and that that's changing the conversation uh, around, you know, levels of support, the R&D going into these different technologies. And, you know, I don't know what's going to come of that, but it seems that we're at a different place than we were a decade or two decades ago. And so I think that makes me more optimistic that we could be surprised by some of yeah, this technology. I totally, totally agree. I mean, I would say that just in the last couple of years with, to your point, the, the speed of the transition and I think the realization of the, the size, not just the size of the investment, but also the, the size of the prize, quite frankly, um, you know, earlier in my career, I've been focused on the supply chain for about 13 years. But earlier in my career, I never talked to oil and gas players, um, never talked to sort of larger pools of capital. And that's obviously maybe it's not obvious, but I think it's really important in the sense that you do need large pools of you know, what I would call money with a long fuse to come into mm -hmm. this sector and invest for the next 5, 10, 15 years, as opposed to kind of fast money. Um, again, worried about, you know, intra intra year or whatever supply demand dynamics. So anyways, that 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 is, again, we could sort of go down that rabbit hole much further. I, I don't want to. I just um, two more questions um, that we'll finish up with. And one is I I'd just like you to for a minute, pretend that you're sitting there uh, in the White House and there's a cabinet level meeting and, you know, there's President Biden and the cabinet. Um, what would you advise them and knowing everything you know from a historical perspective everything we've talked about with respect to the ira and your own sort of vision for this transition um, if there were one or two things that you could advise president biden and his cabinet on with respect to the transition uh, what do you think those would be if i were if i were sitting in that room I, i'm not i think I think they know what the big challenge is, but I would emphasize it, which is, you know, no matter how many electric vehicles we have out there, no, how many, no matter how many, you know, wind turbines we've got, you know, uh, you know, put into place, you know, we don't have the transmission capacity to move this electricity around and, you know, manage the grid in a way that is more stable and resilient. 
um, we're not going to be in a very good place. We're going to wind up, you know, burning a lot of natural gas to make the electric grid work and charge up all of those vehicles. And, you know, and so to come back to a point you raised earlier, Chris, in the context of mining, you know, it's about permitting. Right? We're in a position where we need to build a lot of transmission lines. We need to put up a lot of renewable energy resources, and we need to develop the the mines to support all of that. And all of those projects require permitting, and especially in the case of transmission and in terms of mining, you know, the time horizons uh, on account of the multiple levels of um, you know, permitting that have to be uh, complied with, you know, pushes those projects out, you know, 5, 10, 15 years into the future. And we don't have 5, 10, 15 years to wait to get these projects online. And I don't know how to, you know, I, I don't feel like I've got good ideas for how to solve the permitting challenge. Because on the one hand, you know, the communities and the, you know, people who are going to be most directly affected by these projects, you know, need to have a voice and have a role and be at the table from the start, um, you know, to help shape how these projects are developed. Uh, at the same time, um, these are projects that need to be moving forward, you know, in a matter of years, not in a matter of decades. And that's going to require, you know, simplifying, expediting um, the permitting process. And, you know, so, and kind of given all the other pieces that the Biden administration has put into place and the pieces they're working on right now um, around emissions regulations for power plants and vehicles, I mean, this seems like the big question mark that needs to be solved. How do we solve the permitting question? Right. Totally, totally agree. I'm glad you glad um, we're, we're aligned on that. So final question for you, again, coming back to uh, this excellent book you have written. And by the way, this is not your first book. This is book number three. So I don't know if third time's a charm or not, but um, definitely, again, can't emphasize enough how how worthwhile uh, it is to read. Um, what surprised you most about writing or, or researching this book? Yeah, you know, a lot of things surprised me in writing this book. And part of it is that it took me 10 years to write this book. And for a lot of that time, I didn't know how to do it. I mean, that's why I hadn't written it. Um, but, you know, in the end, I, I wrote the book in about in about a year when I finally figured out exactly what I wanted to say. So I don't know, things that surprised me. One was just how energy intensive double A batteries are. You know, to get those blister packs that can sit there for a decade and work just as well when you open them as when they were manufactured a decade before, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to refine all of those materials and prepare them for use in, in a AA battery. Um, so, I mean, something like 100 times more energy goes in than comes out when you drop that into your remote control. That was a surprise. I think the other one is just how highly recycled lead acid batteries are. Lead acid batteries are very problematic for lots of different reasons. But if we do want to model for, you know, closing the loop on a battery supply chain, and we've got to do that with lithium ion batteries, you know, there's a lot to be learned from lead acid batteries. Absolutely. Well, listen, I want to I want to thank you for the opportunity to chat in your time today. Um, how can how can folks listening um, find out more about the book and, and find out more about you? Oh, well, thanks for the invitation to be here. I've really enjoyed it. And yeah, the book is, um, well, you mentioned the website. So it's www.charged-the-book.com. 
www.thebookshop.com. And there's a lot of information about the book on there, including the first couple of pages of every chapter, if you just want a quick peek. Um, the book is also coming out in paperback in just a couple of days. Um, so it's going to be easier to get uh, through all of your favorite booksellers. And it's published by the University of Washington Press. And right now they've got a spring sale. So um, if that's still live when this uh, podcast goes out, it actually brings the price of the book down to $15 with free shipping. Wow. Very timely podcast. That's that's terrific. Well, listen, thank you again very much uh, for your time. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks so much, Chris. Have a good day. You too.